Shalom, shalom, Betariel and friends of Betariel, and welcome to the Wednesday Bible study on the book of Deuteronomy. How important is it for a congregation of God to be united under one Lord, one faith, one fundamental belief in the scriptures, or one statement of faith? Like the Lord once asked Israel through the prophet Amos, can two walk together unless they are agreed? They would not. They could not walk together for a long time, for this is especially true when it comes to the agreement that God made with man. And this is where our pastor today, Moses, is about to bring out in this powerful chapter 12 of Deuteronomy. While he speaks to the nation of Israel, our other pastor, Paul, also brings out this fundamental truth, and it is all coming back to the same teaching that the Lord has brought back again and again. Le let me bring you to the last verse of Deuteronomy chapter 12. This is what it says. Whatever I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to nor take away from it. It all comes back to staying close to the source, that is the scriptures. And what follows in Deuteronomy 13 is a warning about those false prophets and teachers or those who followed and those who followed them and encourage others to leave or forsake the word of God. Both this chapter are so contemporary for they coincide with the many prophecies of the church in the end times, which is characterized by a slow but sure departure from the word of God. And so I'm very excited to begin this study of the, the, these two chapters. But before, as we usually do, uh, before our midweek study, let us take a question we received this week, one which also coincides with the teaching we find in our text today. It is about the witch of Andor with Saul and Samuel. Sharon will read the question for us. Did Samuel actually come and appear before Saul after his death when the witch of Endor called him up? In Luke 16:26, Yeshua tells us in his parable that there is a divide between heaven and hell that cannot be crossed. Is that divide also between heaven and earth? If so, was Samuel able to cross the divide or was it a demon and not Samuel who is actually speaking to Saul? <coughs> Now, thank you for this question, which brings us to an intriguing and strange story, that of the witch of Endor. Let me first say that this story is often used to support the belief that one can call on the dead and bring them up. Today, there are many Christian denominations which encourages the, the, the prayers even to the dead. I believe that this story actually shows the exact opposite that we cannot communicate with the dead. No one can call on the dead and even less so bring them up. And when they think they do, it is a hoax from the demonic world. It's like playing with the demons who can take on the form or the voice of a dead person to fool the people. And the law of God sternly forbids such things. See what God says in Deuteronomy 18 verses 10 to 12. I will begin with this verse. There shall not be found among you anyone who calls on a medium or a spiritist or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God drives them out from before you. 
Now, this passage clearly and forcefully forbids the calling of the dead spirit or any communication with them, a communication that is in fact impossible, but one which, which touches the demonic world. Now, this being said, what happened with Saul and Samuel? The story of 1 Samuel 28, I want to tell you, is exceptional. I believe that it is Saul who came up, not because the witch brought him up, but because God did this. In fact, the witch was herself was so surprised when she saw Samuel. She did not expect him. Samuel was brought back so that he could give a final prophecy on the preservation of Israel and declare the end of Saul's dynasty. Saul, by the way, was not supposed to be king of Israel. You know, he was from the tribe of Benjamin, not from the tribe of Judah. So this story brings us at a point in Saul's life when he felt that as king of Israel, he was losing the grip of, on his throne and the enemies of Israel were getting closer and closer to Jerusalem. So when Saul sought words and direction from God, there was none. There was none. There was no prophet from God. And so he went to see a medium, the witch of Endor, to bring back up Samuel the prophet. And so he goes. And once he has contact with the witch, we read in verse 11, she asked him, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for, for me. She does not argue, it's no big deal, but this time it is different. She's out for a surprise. See her fear and dread when she sees Samuel himself appearing. See verse 12, when the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. Why did she cry out with a loud voice? Because she did not expect to see Samuel. Perhaps she herself knew that the whole thing about speaking to the dead was a scam. But here, God caught her on, at her own game. So the Hebrew word, by the way, cryat, uh, zak in Hebrew, is a cry for help, a cry of horror, as when the Israelite cried out to God when they were in bondage in Egypt, or when under the threat of hardship of other enemies. And she cried out with a loud voice, Bekol Gadol, it's written. It was not routine business for her. But she is not the only one to be amazed in this story. See that Samuel is as well. Look at verse 15. Now Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? The word disturb, ragaz, is defined as coming out, out quaking with fear, excited, agitated. It seems that Samuel was not worn as he was called. He perhaps thought that something drastic happened in Israel. Our, uh, you know, one rabbi said that Samuel thought that it was the day of his judgment. This is why he was so anxious. But because we are told in Ecclesiastes 9.5 that the dead know nothing, the Talmud also understood this verse to say that the dead have no knowledge of what is happening on earth. This is how some interpret Samuel's surprise. So both the witch and Samuel are surprised. So it is not everyday business we're reading about here. 
and see what Samuel answers God in verse 16. Why, why, why then do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you, speaking to Saul, of course, has departed from you and has become your enemy, he says. This is quite a statement. Saul became an enemy of God. And this is after so many repeated acts of disobedience that we see in the book of Samuel. This is when Samuel gives a prophecy about the nation, which must have been in a pitiful state, seeing how their leader is so disabled with their, and their enemies right at the door. So Samuel's prophecy for them is in verse 19. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hands of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. And so it happened. Israel was delivered, I mean, in the hands of the Philistines, but the nation was preserved, and Saul and his children were killed. Now, why would God give a prophecy about the death of Saul? Why not just let him go? He was already very distraught. Here he is given this added knowledge of his imminent death. You know, I would tell this prophecy is really another act of grace from God. One of the many we see in the book of Samuel. Here God warns Saul so that perhaps he would repent. The whole sin is an act of grace for the medium as well as, as it is for Saul. Also, did you know that in this short conversation of four verses, Samuel mentions the name of God seven times between verses 16 to 19, as if to call Saul's heart and also this woman to call to come back to God. But Saul did not get it at all. You know what he did right after? He had a sumptuous meal with the witch. From verses 21 to 25, we have the description of this meal. Instead of turning back to God, Saul had co communion with the witch, who here becomes so motherly and caring. It is a strange turn of events. This is the other amazing part of the story. But all of this describes a story of rebellion, as we're going to see, in fact, on our study of Deuteronomy 12. Samuel said it before and clearly so. He's in Samuel 15. 23 of 1 Samuel, for rebellion is as the sin of, of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. The story of the witch of Endor is wrapped up in these words. For more information on this section, you can go to the study of 1 Samuel part 15. It's available on our website. Let us move into chapter 12 of Deuteronomy. We are at page 12 of your handout on the top. Again, you can always download the handout from our website, betariel.ca. So chapter 12 is a turning point in the book of Deuteronomy. After 11 chapters of introduction and of great advice, now Moses begins to expound the law. Here the law is given for the training of the Israelites for their new mission to be the priestly nation. From Deuteronomy chapter 12 and on through the next 15 chapters, we are given legislations and regulations designed to govern the life of the Israelites in the Promised Land. As Moses begins by saying in verse 1, where we read, These are the statutes and judgments which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess, all the days that you live on the earth. 
And what follows is for us today a gold mine full of counsel, full of guidance. These are the, the words of God to a people he loves. And these words translate into his concern for them. And regardless of where or when it was given, these words are ageless in, in their wisdom and ability to touch every one of us. Let's remember the words of Second Timothy 3.16. All scriptures, including this chapter, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrines, for reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. And the first thing that the Israelites are told is seen in verse 2 and 3. Now, this is crucial. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars, break their asherim, and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place. You know, back in, in, in chapter 7, God told the Israelites to put away all the Canaanites out of the land. Now he's asking them to put away all memories of the Canaanites' idolatrous lifestyle. That is everything and anything that could lure them back to do what these people did before. Uh, and here we have a catalog of idolatry. We read of the high mountains, of the hills, of every green tree, of the Asherim, of the carved images. These are symbols of idolatry. The Asherim, where are they? The, these were wooden uh, cult symbols of the goddess Asherah, a Canaanite goddess. The, the word comes from Asher, meaning blessings, where the people bless the idol and ask blessing in return. These places were places of wasted blessings. The high mountains, the hill, and every green tree, this is where these people worship their God. They thought the higher they, they, they were, like on the mountains, the closer to God they would be, just like those associated with the Tower of Babel. They thought they reached the heavens. This is what the Lord asked them to wipe out of the land, so that, as the last words of verse 3, their names will be destroyed from that place which is the land of Israel. Just these two verses teaches us to, to be careful with what we feed our mind with, what is around us, what can lure us into these bad things. And it is unfortunate that Israel had not followed God's advice in here. For the most part, they did exactly the opposite. Even in the best of times, we read that these idolatrous relics were always, in one way or another, present in Israel. And this is obvious when you consider the history of godly kings of Israel. Six times over, we read this sad phrase, but the high places were not removed. Of King Asa, we read in 1 King 15, Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David, but the high places were not removed. Of his son, we read in 1 Kings 23, 43, And he walked in all the ways of his father Asa. He did not turn aside from them, doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was fine, he was good, until we read the verse, But the high places were not removed. And the same with King Joash, and King Hamaziah, and King Azariah, and the good King Jotham. All these six kings, were, we are told that they did well, they were okay, except that they did not remove the high places. They did not have a completely cleansed 
life. And I wonder what it would have become of these kings and of Israel if they had utterly destroyed these high places. They would have achieved, I believe, so much more. And today, wouldn't be so sad if the same thing is written of good and godly person, always serving, always loving, but the high places were not taken away. The lesson for us here is that believers often keep one or two or three little sins in their lives. But small or great, sin is sin, and it is that one thing that will not allow, allow God to fully bless us. However, it should not be this way. We are to search daily our hearts and confess all our sins we, we find and put them away so that we can benefit of the incredible blessings the Lord has in store for us. Now, the next command that Moses highlights in Deuteronomy 12 is an is equally important as it has to do with the right way to worship God for the Lord has given us so many directives to it to all of us to all believers then and today let's begin by reading verses 4 and 5 you shall not worship the Lord your God with such things but you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling place and there you shall go. You see, to Israel, <clears throat> God chose one place of worship and one place where they could meet God, that is, in the, t the temple in Jerusalem. This was to prevent idolatry and polytheism. Following this advice, the Israelites will not be tempted to invent their own religion as they did with the golden calf. But to always keep the memory of this one place, the temple where God resided. And to emphasize this point, Moses tells them in verse 8, You shall not at all do as we are doing here today, every man doing whatever is right in his own eyes. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. That, that is, each one had his idea of how to worship God or how or who God is. This is why they needed an established place with established trained people to lead them to know their God. The main point so far is there's only one living and true God. There's only one true worship to this God. And there's only one place and one way to approach God. But how do we translate this for today? This same concept is seen in the New Testament with the other pastor besides Moses, that is Paul, who taught very much the same fundamental things. This is how Paul modernized, if you want, Moses' words in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, this is very uh, thorough, but proportionate to men's tendency to invent and create new religions. And even with this long list, there's still so many different opposite views in invisible Christianity. That was one problem I had to face, by the way, when I first became a believer. Which denomination or group of people has the truth or most of the truth? This is why I didn't go to church for the first eight years of my spiritual life, uh, something I definitely do not recommend today. But for me, it was 
eight years of sabbatical in the Word of God and where I understood, and I thank God for this, that the way to approach God was mainly through the Scriptures, through prayers, and also through communion with others, which I liked, of course, for eight years. And now, looking at the passage of Ephesians 4, notice there are seven elements, right? One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all. Again, we see the number seven, which shows a completeness, a fullness. Here we can also see the three members of the triunity of God, the Spirit, the Lord, and God. You, you can see that in the form of a menorah using the background of the slide that we have. In the middle, you have the Lord. On the right, you have the Messiah, one and only God our mediator, by the way, who dwells in our hearts through faith. On the left, you have the Spirit of God, who is the, uh, in the body of Messiah and who dwells in us and sanctifies us. That is the seven components of the congregations of God. So we can see here that the church of God, the body of God, the body of the Messiah is one body with him. And we are one body together. Our relationship is much stronger than it appears. We are more than friends, by the way. We are family together. And we are one in that we have one hope, the blessed hope, the great gift of God, that is the, the conviction that we will be with him forever. This hope tells us that we will be spending eternity together with him. We are all one in that we have one faith, another great gift of God. We, are, we have the same faith, that is a strong tie, since faith is the one that leads us to the Messiah Yeshua. It is that one single way to him. This is when the Lord calls us to be his ambassadors. And finally, we are one in that we have one baptism. That is, we are all identified with the same Lord. You know, the unfortunate thing is that many individuals, and they are numerous of them, uh, become their own unique congregation. And they say, I don't need anyone. I have my God and I am my own church. The Lord told me this and the Lord told me that as if they were the only valid recipient of God's word. But the Bible says we are a body that is a body of the Messiah. God works through the body of the Messiah. Let me show you another passage uh, that Paul brings out. This one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 14 to 20. This passage is to encourage us uh, to, to, to belong to a body of the Messiah because, because this is where I believe that the Lord works with his people. For the body is not one member, but many. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now there are many members, but one body. Have you ever seen an eye walking by itself or an ear trying to see? Uh, are we not together the body of the Messiah? We are a body because it is written in Proverbs 27, iron sharpens iron. Believers need each other. The community of believers is so important. This is where the Spirit of God sharpens our spirit as he brings us to consider situations which call the reader to deeply think and meditate. Now see how insistent, by the way, Moses is in instructing about the proper worship as if he knew what would happen in the congregation of God. In fact, he knew as we're going to see in Deuteronomy 28. He had a vision of what would happen to Israel even until the second coming. Look at verse 11 and 14. 
then there will be a place where the lord your god chooses to make his name abide there you shall bring all that i command you your burnt offerings your sacrifices your tithes the heave offering of your hand and all your choice offerings which you vow to the lord but in the place which the lord chooses in one of your tribes there you shall offer your burnt offerings and there you shall do all that i command you well, why this insistence god wanted to avoid spiritual anarchy led by people who cannot abide under the authority of an established godly congregation as god established them after this moses gives them instruction so that they would keep the memory of the presence of god the presence of the temple always in their mind in deuteronomy 12 god tells them that they are allowed to kill any clean animal for food but not in any way see what he tells them again in verse 23 and 24 only be sure that you do not eat the blood for the blood is the life and you may not eat the life with the meat you shall not eat it you shall pour it on the earth like water here we see the importance of the blood as the Lord emphasizes the means through which their sins is covered. This they had to carry with them all the time. The, the key verse, by the way, for this is Leviticus 17.11, for it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the souls. This is a most famous verse in Leviticus and one on which may rest the whole sacrificial system. Let, let's look at it more closely. It, it, it powerfully pulls anyone to Yeshua for salvation. Notice the key words and how they are repeated. Life, blood, atonement, life, blood, life, atonement, life, which is the word nefesh. It is the same word which we translate as soul, our inner self, which is different from our bodies. The soul is the very self in man that goes to eternity after death. There's another world out there. Here the, the word nefesh is mentioned three times along with the word blood and atonement each mentioned two times. And what is clear is that our soul, our inner self, our nefesh is atoned by the blood and only by blood. And so the Israelites of the time brought home with them the, the, the anticipation of his coming and always of the presence of God. Even in the very everyday consumption of their food, they were reminded uh, of this sacred connection made with the blood as we remember once again the verse of Deuteronomy 12, 16. It says, Only you shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it on the earth like water. This particular prohibition is not found anywhere else in the Near East uh, history. It is proper to the Mosaic Club because it speaks of the Messiah that is only found in Israel, in the scriptures. And again, Moses ends this chapter with another reminder of how important the scriptures are for us. Let us, and one more time, see this last verse 32. It says, Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. In order to avoid erring, Moses again reminds us not to add or take away from the word. And this advice is given in a new manner, a new way in the next chapter, that is Deuteronomy 13, which we will look at next time we meet together. May the Lord richly bless you with the words of God that we have read today. Amen. Hallelujah.
Don't lie. 